This is Talk Ultra. This is episode 11 of the interviews by Talk Ultra. On this week's show, we talk to Dr. Phil Maffetone, dating back to 2013. I'm now talking to best. I'm now talking to best-selling author Dr. Phil Maffetone. Uh, he's worked with many many people in the sporting industry but he's also known for his music ability phil welcome to talk ultra and it's great to be here i appreciate your uh your contacting me no it's uh it's a real pleasure to have you on the show and your name has cropped up in many a conversation about speed in training and diet and paleo and carbohydrates so i thought it was time that we got you on uh, and then you could explain to us all about your knowledge and what you can bring to the ultra community but but first of all can you give us a little bit of an insight to your background and and sort of what got you to where you are now sure um i guess it began when i was uh in school as a 16 17 year old uh who suddenly found out he could print faster than anyone in the in the school and so i became a track and field runner and then uh went on to college with a a nice um, assistance from the school as a um, as a runner and um, was very successful and uh, eventually went uh, went a different way um, from my slightly different way from my biology major in college. But I went into um, healthcare and learned uh, biofeedback and acupuncture and um, osteopathy and chiropractic and many many different things and decided I wouldn't go into any one. I would use all of them. Right. My interest in exercise physiology grew quite a bit, and that's what I focused a lot of my attention on, and that included nutrition and diet and um, various other things as well. So when I went into practice in the 70s, I started really doing the things that I'm still doing today, even though I'm no longer in practice, but the things you mentioned, the paleo ideas, the low-carbohydrate diets, and on and on. And uh, one of my focuses mainly with endurance athletes and others as well was developing the aerobic system because that's a very important system in, uh, in, in endurance sports. And just as an example, the aerobic system provides 99% of the energy one would use during a marathon. And for those competing in longer events, of course, that number actually goes up. And if you do a short race, what they call short races these days, a yeah. 10K, you're still using 98% of your aerobic system as an energy source to, to get through that race. Yeah, I came aware of your name with your work with Mark Allen, the triathlete. You were significant in changing his ability to run fundamentally, uh, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong with any of this information. But Mark had speed, but he didn't necessarily have the ability to make that speed last over time, and, and you were instrumental in changing that. That's pretty much uh, the way it was. Of course, Mark, when I first saw him, it was 1982 or maybe 1983, and he was just 
just getting into this new sport of triathlon and um along with a bunch of others i would go out to san diego from my new york office and regularly see these young up-and-coming uh athletes some of them uh paul and newbie frazier turned out to be a great athlete and some others but mark you know like like many young people there's a good amount of speed that they had but they hadn't yet built endurance so uh, that was for Mark the next thing on his list that he uh, needed to do, whether he was completely aware of that or not. That was um, what I focused on because I, I thought that's what he needed the most. So, what you did for him can directly be, be related to the listeners of this show who are ultra runners. Um, you know, they may very well be coming back. Um, into ultra running from a different sport or they may be coming into ultra running from say 10k half marathon marathon um so they may have some speed and they may have some endurance but they may not have the endurance to go really long and i think that's where we can sort of really pick up and be specific about some of the advice that you can bring as to how they can go about that Right, and I could use Mark as an example because uh, what I did with Mark, I have done with uh, beginners, I've done with ultramarathoners. I worked with Stu Middleman for many years, and we did the same exact thing with him. Okay. Um, but before I, I get into some of those details, I, sh- I should probably better define this issue of endurance and speed and you know what is it all about absolutely when you think of speed and when when the average person sees or hears the word speed uh in their sport they think of running on the track and running at a full sprint or close to a full sprint people go on the track and do uh 400 meter repeat repeats or 200 meter repeats uh at you know some very fast pace and then jog a bit and then do that again. That's sort of a traditional thing that's been around since um, since coaches from track and field became endurance coaches back in the 60s. That was sort of what they brought into the sport, which is an interesting history. But there's another speed, and it's it's really endurance speed. And I refer to it specifically as aerobic speed. And that's the ability to run faster at a lower heart rate. So if you could run at, say, uh, a nine minutes per mile pace at a 150 heart rate, um, and then you build your aerobic system and you progress to being able to run at an eight-minute pace at the same heart rate, then you've gained a lot of speed. Yep. Uh, and with, with Mark, what I did was I put a heart monitor on him, and back then th- there really were not heart monitors available. I had a cardiac rehab monitor that was big and bulky, and it um, it was kind of funny looking, but it, it was all we had back then. And I set up the um, the heart rate, and I said, you know, let's run at this heart rate. And I remember running around the track with him at uh, the University of San, Di- San Diego, we're kind of going along, and he said, this is kind of slow. And I said, well, this is the level you, you need to build your aerobic system. And it turned out to be about an 820 pace. And I said, how fast do you normally train? And he said, well, about two minutes faster per mile. I said, well, that's why you're not developing endurance. Yeah. So what Mark did was progress from that 820 per mile pace at 
at the time he was at a 155 heart rate based on his age and, and health. Uh, he progressed to about a five minute and 10 second pace per mile at the same heart rate. Right. And that's really what aerobic speed is all about. Right. If you can run a lot faster at the same heart rate, then when you get into a race, you'll be able to race a lot more efficiently with without overextending your body and using up your glycogen stores and so forth. Can I clarify a question there? So if we have a good endurance base, so let's let's say we turn this around the opposite way. So let's say we're coming from an ultra running background um, and we have plenty of endurance, plenty of aerobic capacity. If we then add speed training on top of that, does that make us faster? It depends on which form of speed training uh, is done. If you decide, well, I could, you know, I can go out and run 30 miles and feel quite good, then then that's great endurance. Uh, if you then decide you're going to go to the track and do uh, one mile repeats at a seven minute pace when your 30 mile endurance training run is is at a, a nine minute pace, that's probably beyond your ability. And what you'll end up doing is you'll be able to do your track workouts a little better as time goes on, but your endurance um, actually may become impaired because we have this aerobic system, which is our uh, endurance uh, system, which burns a lot of fat. That's how we get our energy. We burn sugar as well, but the more fat we burn, the, the better we are as an endurance athlete. And then we have the anaerobic system, which is our um, sprinting speed. And they need to maintain a certain balance. And if they don't, if we push the anaerobic system too much, then we impair our aerobic system, we diminish our fat burning, and our endurance is affected adversely. Right. So if we take Mark as an example, and let's say we, you, you got him to run at, at sort of 8.15, 8.30 pace to build his aerobic capacity, but if he did some speed work at, say, 7.30 pace, would then the combination work? If he did too much speed work, then it would not work. So what we did was, uh, I, you know, eventually heart monitors became readily available, and so he trained every day with a heart monitor. And there was a period of time in the year, typically in the winter when there were not really any any important races, where uh, Mark, and again, I, I, I did, this, did this with so many endurance athletes, but there's a period of time when you want to build that aerobic system strictly by training at or below this aerobic level. And during that period of time, you build your endurance and you don't get any interference from speed work, which can diminish the the aerobic development. Okay, great. And that that period of time can last three, four, five, six months in some cases. And during that period of time, the runner gets faster and faster. And now after a six-month period, we say, okay, now what do we do? Then we look at the schedule. We look at the, you know, you have to look at people's life as well because some people have a busy job, a family, a house. They have a very busy life. And if they can include a track workout or a road fartlek workout uh, in amongst their training and the rest of their life, then that's okay. Then at that point, they could do that. 
and then at that point you could you can add some of that anaerobic speed work without interfering with your aerobic base unless you do it for too long and i recommend you know physiologically um doing speed work can sometimes return maximum benefits after just three or four weeks right yeah i mean that that's exactly the type of thing that i was thinking of so you could use it to Mm -hmm. sharpen yourself up coming into an a race right yeah but again you 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 need to look at your entire life and say do i have time for another kind of workout that's a very stressful workout these are not you know this is not uh an easy 10 20 mile run where people just go out and they're capable of doing that this is a a high risk workout and when people get injured um physically injured in the majority of cases those injuries occur in anaerobic muscle fibers and the result is from doing something anaerobic right interesting so let's take um mark and and talk about how you made this transition with them and the you know so that people who are listening to this show can apply what uh, what you did with mark well i determined the optimal heart rate that would develop his aerobic system and for him in the beginning and i can't remember how old he was in 1982 or three but that you know he was a, a young guy and his training heart rate was 155 i refer to that as the maximum aerobic training heart rate so i said to him do anything you want in training but don't exceed 155 heart rate so when you're going up a hill you have to slow down when you're going down a hill you can speed up if somebody comes running up behind you and passes you you can't follow them all that kind of stuff okay as as time went on he got faster and as soon as he saw that he could actually run faster at the same heart rate he got pretty excited. Okay. And how do we find out what that, that heart rate is? There's uh, something called the 180 formula, which is on my website. It's in my books. It's in a lot of articles that are out there. And the 180 formula has you subtract your age from 180, um, and that number has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a means to an end. And then depending on your uh, state of there's a whole bunch of things you need to look at um, determine which one of four categories do you best fit into and those categories will have you subtract an additional 10 subtract an additional five keep the number 180 minus the age the same or uh, if you're a competitive athlete add five so but it depends on you know if you're if you're often injured if you're frequently ill with uh, colds and flu or if you have allergies or if you're on medication you have to make these adjustments and then you come up with a number and that's your maximum aerobic heart rate okay and can can this maximum aerobic heart rate be found with a a vo2 test well it's really how i came up with the formula Um, originally actually i determined the formula what i call manually i would I would evaluate an athlete, I would test them, I would do blood tests, I would do treadmill tests, um, I would look at their posture. You know, if you look at someone's gait, uh, and I, I used to go to the track uh, with a bunch of athletes every week, and I would evaluate their gaits. And what I discovered was that when an athlete shifted from an aerobic run to an anaerobic run, and it could be a matter of three or four beats, heartbeats, um, very slight increase in speed, 
when that happened, there'd be a slight alteration in the gait. The gait would um, be noticeably changed. And so I would do all these evaluations, and it would take a couple of hours for me to really come up with a number for an athlete. And I I thought that, well, gee, there must be a better way to do this. And then I realized that the treadmill test where they measure the oxygen and carbon dioxide, um, which is how they measure VO2 max, but VO2 max is, I consider it a, a less worthy number than some other important number, which is called respiratory quotient. Yeah. Respiratory quotient is the the amount of carbon dioxide you exhale and the amount of oxygen you inhale, and that formula will give you the RQ, respiratory quotient, and it really yeah. tells you how much fat you're burning versus sugar. Yeah. And so the whole goal of building the aerobic system and, and building great endurance with aerobic speed is to increase the body's ability to convert fat to energy and have less of an emphasis on sugar, which is something that sprinters use yeah and this is why your your training methods are so interesting uh in line with paleo and low carbohydrate because that's directly right. related to the rq it really is is all tied together and, and today uh gas analyzers with technology are so um common they're easy to find you can um you can find often a trainer or a, a therapist or a doctor in his office having a a gas analyzer and a notebook computer. It doesn't take much equipment. Um, but I, I used that to, to kind of confirm what my ideas were, and that led to the formula because not everybody could have have these treadmill tests reg regularly. Yeah. And with, uh, with the advent of um, the wireless heart monitors in 83 or 84, I think, it became uh, a wonderful biofeedback tool that runners could use just plug in the numbers, uh, plug in your, your yourself to the formula, come up with your training heart rate, and train at that level so that you build the aerobic system. So we've got our training heart rate. that We don't go over it. Um, and as we train, we become faster at that same heart rate. So what does that training involve? It really involves whatever you could create as a schedule based on your lifestyle so if you could you know if you can spend an hour a day and maybe two hours on a sunday training then that's your training schedule it almost doesn't you have some leeway you could be more than that or less than that or a lot more than that if you have the time and some people have time for 45 minutes a day and no more you know that becomes very individual but the heart rate the maximum aerobic heart rate is very specific that you want to maintain. And there's a very, very important factor here. And you you mentioned it by saying, you know, you, you train at that heart rate and you get faster. The question is, what happens if you don't get faster? Hmm. Well, the human body makes progress. If you give it the right stimulus, it gets better. We are, uh, we are endurance animals. We are... Um, genetically programmed to, to get better. We are, we are high-performance people, and um, we will, by nature, get better. If we don't, it means something is wrong. It means your diet is not right. It means your stress levels are too high. It means you came up with the wrong number. Maybe you're three beats higher. Some people are very sensitive, and if they're three beats higher than they should be, they won't progress. If you're not eating well, if you're 
for example, uh, if you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrate, not during your run, but, but during your regular eating habits, um, that's the quickest way to turn off your fat-burning mechanism. So yeah. if you don't see yourself progressing, it's a very good test because it tells you that something is blocking your natural uh, ability to be better endurance athlete. What I'm finding really interesting is that we've had a lot of conversation on Tour Culture about a changing diet, but we're almost taking it to another level here in the sense of, of the depth that you can bring to this in relation to heart rate. So when we're, we're, we're doing this session uh, and let's say we've found what our heart rate is and everything is working well and we are progressing, so we are getting faster, how do we then control it? Is there a time scale that we do this for? Um, you know, does it work for three months, six months, nine months? Is it something that we incorporate all the time? I know a lot of athletes who incorporate it all the time. Stu Middleman only trained aerobically uh, for his uh, races. Mark, on the other hand, did some anaerobic work because um, in part that's what he wanted to do. I think it helped them a little bit. It didn't help them a lot because for an Ironman race, 99% of his energy would come from his aerobic system. And um, so it depends on the person. But generally, um, as you progress and get faster as the weeks and the months go by, typically what happens is you reach a plateau, a natural plateau, where the body has sort of built a good aerobic base and it, it almost is like the body wants to stay there and um, and uh, and not make any more progress. And that's a nice point to say, okay, we're going to do a few weeks of something anaerobic uh, very carefully. And during that period of time, you generally won't get any faster aerobically at that same aerobic heart rate, but you shouldn't get any slower. Um, and then to, to make sure, uh, what I recommend people do is, to test themselves on a track, and I call this the MAF test, Maximum Aerobic Function Test. Yeah. And you could do it on the road. You could do it at any point-to-point um, um, course. I like it on the track because I can, you know, people can relate to things better. I, I think on, on the track. But basically, you run, um, say, five miles on a track, and you time each mile. And your mile splits might go from nine minutes to nine minutes and 10 seconds. And then the third one, nine minutes and 15 seconds. You normally would go a little slower as the miles pass. Um, and that's because of the, a, a normal fatigue factor. And every month, if that test is done, then you have um, a list of, of months with your first mile time, say, uh, uh, nine minutes is your first mile time. And then a month later, your first mile time is 8.50. And then maybe a third month, you're at 8.45. And so as the months go by, like I said earlier, six months comes by and you're, you're now at an eight-minute pace. Well, you hit this plateau, and then you might do some speed work, and, but still do the MAF test because if you find suddenly – where you were at an eight-minute pace, now you're at an 8.20 pace, then you know you've gone off course and yeah. your aerobic system is, is going backwards, and that's not a good thing. It's something that I've incorporated with my coaching clients um, in the past is that once a month we've done an MAF test, and, and of course the, the conditions that you, you do that test in need to be as close to 
to each other as possible um you know because weather, right. weather conditions temperature wind etc will always affect a test like that how do you get around that phil when you've done this in the past do you try to go indoors or have you naturally assumed that conditions would be consistent well it's difficult you know where you are um in england you, you have a problem <laughs> with humidity in the air yeah um quite often and humidity you know the difference between a dry day and a and a, a high humid day is is going to be a fair amount um and of course wind and um all kinds of other things so you know, I tell people to do the best they can in terms of consistency. If they have an indoor track available, that's perfect. But if you go on an indoor track and if it's a shorter, you know, if it's if it's a 200-meter track, you have to consider that because you'll be a little slower because of the turns. You know, you do the best you can. If you see a, a five-second difference in your MAF test, it doesn't excite me much either way. But if you see a 15 or 20-second difference, from one test to the next then then that becomes significant we've done the maf test um and we've plateaued um and so we incorporate some new training some speed work which adds a different stimulus and and as you said we'll we'll see a benefit from that in say two to three weeks what do we then do at that point do we then go back to the heart rate and and then carry on another phase of training. Exactly. Then you, well, there's two two ways to go, and you know, it, it's also a very individual thing, depending on what a person wants to do. But, but at that point, a person might typically enter competition and have a so-called race season, or um, one key race, or uh, you know, two or three key races leading up to the big race, or whatever. Um, and then during that time, um, they still want to you know, go back to only aerobic training. And then uh, when the race season ends, you then have your big aerobic training base again, where you're doing the aerobic training for six months and you're trying to get your, your MAF test down even lower. And then uh, that continues as a, as a training cycle. Okay. We get on to the next point now. We've, we've covered the training side of it, but it directly relates to low carbohydrates and paleo um, because what we want to do is turn on the fat burning system. And, and that's really, um, that's the bottom line with endurance. You've got to train your body to uh, burn more fat for energy. And what, what I found was that not only is fat burning important for endurance racing, but it's important for health. I found that um, I think I have in one of my books or maybe some of my books and articles, uh, a little chart where I had um, non-competitive athletes uh, tested, and I found that their RQs, those who basically burned more fat, had less signs and symptoms of ill health. And um, you, you not only get an endurance benefit, which is a fitness-oriented thing, but you get the health benefits. And if you're both health, healthy and fit, you're going to be a better athlete. What about the argument that people would say, so you're telling me to, to eat no carbohydrate. Um, where am I going to get my energy from? Well, um, most of the body's energy comes from, could come from fat. It comes from both fat and sugar, and it's, it's a mix of fuels that humans have the ability to, to utilize, and those who, who obtain more of their energy from fat are much better off. Um, but I want to go back and just uh, comment on something you said, uh, which is that 
we don't want to eat any carbohydrate. That's not true. We're, we're going to be eating some carbohydrate. We're eating vegetables. We're, we're eating some berries, some fruits, e- even meat yeah. have some carbohydrates. So we are eating carbohydrates. We're, uh, we're not so low, most of the time at least, that we go into the state of ketosis. Um, there are some, yeah. uh, I, I spoke to uh, uh, someone recently who's setting up a, an event on our upcoming tour who is with a group, and I can't remember the name now, but what they do is they are um, they go into ketosis, and so that's this high fat-burning state, and they, they do that by eating hardly any carbohydrate, and um, they claim it, uh, it increases their ability to use more fats, which is which is true. Um, but basically, it's, it's the elimination of refined carbohydrate. That's the biggest step for yeah. people because refined carbohydrates produce more insulin. And what insulin does is it turns off our fat burning mechanism and it increases the body's storage of fat because we're not burning it so we 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 store it i meant that when i when i said about the carbohydrates i was making an assumption that uh, you know what listeners would assume was that i was meaning the typical yeah. carbs of bread and rice and pasta and 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 of course um vegetables are, are something that we're going to eat but they do contain carbohydrate and of course fruit mm-hmm. etc so we have the diet and you know one one thing that that i get a lot of feedback on is so you're actually telling me to eat more fat but is that not bad for me is you know what about cholesterol and 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 things that are related to that well it it's the first question that comes up you know if i eat more fat am i going to get fat um and i have to say i you know i spent um a lot of time almost secluded in the music industry um and so i i I came uh to the point where i started going to races again i started working with some athletes and i noticed in a in just a few short years that the the uh, the number of over fat athletes at races was um uh sadly uh very high I, i couldn't believe how how many people have too much body fat eating fat actually promotes the burning of more fat. So if you go back, let's go back to our RQ test on the treadmill. If you're going in to have a test and you eat a typical breakfast of, say, cereal or pancakes or something which has refined carbohydrates, your RQ test, you'll fail your test miserably. You won't be burning much fat. You'll be burning a lot of sugar. Versus the person who has a a breakfast of um, eggs and vegetables cooked in butter, um, and they go in for the test, they will immediately show that they're burning a lot more fat for energy and less less sugar. So, you know, that's uh, one aspect of it. The other, from a health standpoint, um, is that they've really, the, the scientific research has never shown uh, in any significant way that eating fat is bad. The problem is that when we eat a lot of uh, saturated fat, for example, animal fat, and we don't consume enough of the um, fats from, say, fish, uh, which are very, very important fats that help balance our our body's use of fats in other ways, such as controlling inflammation. And of course, we're eating. If we eat a lot of vegetables, then we're getting uh, a lot of uh, those polyunsaturated fats as well, which are also important. So. Good diet will give us a good balance of fats. That's really the the bottom line. Great. When we're going out for our long run, 
at our lower heart rate. Do you advocate going fasted or eating fat before to help turn the fat burners well, on? Well, mostly it depends on the person, but I think for most people, having a meal before that training uh, run is going to be very helpful. And then the, the question is, uh, what do I eat during my run? And really the response is, find out how long you can run before you need to consume something. Um, many people can yep. run for 45 minutes or an hour or 90 minutes or two hours. Um, what happens is as you improve your aerobic system and as you could run faster at the same heart rate, as your MAF test gets better, you'll be able to run longer without any supplemental food during your run. And I know people that could easily run two, three hours uh, without anything, and some even longer. So you want to develop that fat-burning mechanism, and then you'll rely more on your body's fat-burning than uh, anything else. And then you've brought up the question, Mark, there of let's say we're going out for 10 hours, um, and, and listeners to this show will be doing that. So we've turned the fat burners on we're becoming much more efficient at fat burning and, and maybe we can actually get to four hours without needing any supplementation but once we we get to that point where we need to start taking additional food does it matter what that food is i mean for example can we take gels or do we start to cause issues with our within our system then if we start to take high sugars well, there again it depends on the person and it all comes down to one important thing, and it's experimentation. Um, as a runner, you've got to find out uh, two very, you've got to answer two important questions. One is what uh, food is going to help maintain my energy? And two, what food is going to not give me intestinal distress? If you find yeah. the foods that meet both those, those important answers, then you've got the perfect food. What I recommend is that um, people try, uh, try using honey. Honey has, uh, uh, is a, is a monosaccharide, uh, uh, so we don't have to digest honey. Many of the gels are made from uh, disaccharides like sucrose or uh, rice uh, syrup or corn syrup or some other disaccharide and sometimes even a starch. And they all need to be digested. And the the thing your body will not do very well in the middle of a run is digest something. And the, the, the most common yeah. uh, indicator that you haven't digested your, your food is that you get bloated, you get gas, you get some indigestion, some cramps. Um, that means you've got undigested sugar in your gut and um, your, your, your gut is unable to, to deal with it. Fascinating. I also recommend the, the honey's a good start. I also recommend diluted fruit juice, um, not citrus, but uh, apple juice, for example, or grape juice, but diluted. You want about a 6% glucose solution. Okay. Um, and so those are going to be, um, uh, I, I talk a lot about that in articles as well, how you can do that. But you want a, a glucose, you want to consume glucose that's not so intense that um, it overwhelms your system, and 6% seems to be uh, a good one. And the difference between consuming, see, the, the, the process of fat burning, in order to maintain it, we actually need to burn sugar as well. Yeah. So we actually burn two things all the time, and if one disappears, the other one fades out as well. And 
So we, we need, that's why we would consume carbohydrates during a run to maintain fat burning. Yep. It's been fascinating speaking to you, Phil. And what I'd like to finish off with is there's going to be quite a few people listening to this and, and thinking, wow, you know, this is maybe exactly what I've been wanting to hear. So if they've been doing the opposite of what we've been talking about, they're on a they're high carb, high sugar diet, uh, and maybe the, the training that they've been doing has not been that controlled. What would you suggest are some of the key things that they should do to transition to this type of diet and this type of training that we've spoken about? Kind of a funny question, but through the years, many people have said to me, well, what, what one thing can I do? They're really saying, I'm not going to do a lot of things. I'm just going to do one thing. And what do you think it should be? And um, it's, it's a silly question because many people need to do a lot of things because they have a lot of bad habits. But yeah. to answer that question, what one thing could you do? It's getting rid of refined carbohydrates because it will um, turn your body in in 24 hours into a much better fat burning machine uh, than you're capable of doing right now. Perfect. That and then and then coming up with that heart rate um, between those two things, the average person will excel um, significantly. Yeah. And can I ask? One other question is that I found when I started to do this, reduce my carbohydrates um, and certainly reduce the amount of food that I was eating during my training sessions. There's a sort of a, a two to three week period. Well, for me, it was anyway, that I found that you, you feel a little bit rough to begin with. Um, and I guess that's the body wanting the carbohydrate, but not getting it. Uh, and your body learning how to switch from, from one food source to another food source. Is that something that people can expect to feel? I think so in, in many cases. You know, the problem is that the body will respond very quickly. You can measure changes and you'll see those changes take place literally in 24 hours. But the brain is saying, oh, we're doing some very different things here. And part of the problem is that uh, sugar is addicting. And when I say sugar, I'm talking about white flour products too because they turn to sugar very quickly. And so we're talking about refined carbohydrates being addicting and people are addicted. And if if you're used to drinking uh, coffee or tea or, you know, caffeine sources and you suddenly stop, it's going to take you a while because of your brain to um, adapt to that and, and literally um, get off that addiction. And that's what many people do feel. Okay, brilliant. And if uh, listeners would like to get some further information on this, is there, is there a reference place that they can go to? My website has, I don't know how many articles, probably around 200 articles uh, that will keep them busy for a while. And it's philmaffetone.com. And there's a, a, a sections on uh, on endurance training and barefoot running and lots of uh, nutrition articles and uh, they'll see information about the books as well there. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate your time, Phil, and uh, it has been uh, an enlightening conversation. Thank you, Ian. It's been my pleasure author Dr. Phil Maffetone. Uh, he's worked with many 
many people in the sporting industry, but he's also known for his music ability. Phil, welcome to Talk Ultra. And it's great to be here. I appreciate your uh, your contacting me. No, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. And your name has cropped up in many a conversation about speed in training and diet and paleo and carbohydrates. So I thought it was time that we got you on uh, and then you could explain to us all about your knowledge and what you can bring to the ultra community but but first of all can you give us a little bit of an insight to your background and and sort of what got you to where you are now sure um i guess it began when i was uh in school as a 16 17 year old uh who suddenly found out he could print faster than anyone in the in the school and so i became a track and field runner and then uh went on to college with a a nice um, assistance from the school as a um, as a runner and um, was very successful and uh, eventually went uh, went a different way um, from my slightly different way from my biology major in college. But I went into um, healthcare and learned uh, biofeedback and acupuncture and um, osteopathy and chiropractic and many many different things and decided I wouldn't go into any one. I would use all of them. Right. My interest in exercise physiology grew quite a bit, and that's what I focused a lot of my attention on, and that included nutrition and diet and um, various other things as well. So when I went into practice in the 70s, I started really doing the things that I'm still doing today, even though I'm no longer in practice, but the things you mentioned, the paleo ideas, the low-carbohydrate diets, and on and on. And uh, one of my focuses mainly with endurance athletes and others as well was developing the aerobic system because that's a very important system in, uh, in, in endurance sports. And just as an example, the aerobic system provides 99% of the energy one would use during a marathon. And for those competing in longer events, of course, that number actually goes up. And if you do a short race, what they call short races these days, a yeah. 10K, you're still using 98% of your aerobic system as an energy source to, to get through that race. Yeah, I came aware of your name with your work with Mark Allen, the triathlete. You were significant in changing his ability to run fundamentally, uh, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong with any of this information. But Mark had speed, but he didn't necessarily have the ability to make that speed last over time, and, and you were instrumental in changing that. That's pretty much uh, the way it was. Of course, Mark, when I first saw him, it was 1982 or maybe 1983, and he was just just getting into this new sport of triathlon and um along with a bunch of others i would go out to san diego from my new york office and regularly see these young up-and-coming uh, athletes some of them uh paul and newbie frazier turned out to be a great athlete and some others but mark you know like like many young people there's a good amount of speed that they had but they hadn't yet built endurance so uh, that was, for Mark, the next thing on his list that he uh, needed to do, whether he was completely aware of that or not. That was um, what I focused on because I, I thought that's what he needed the most. So what you did for him 
can directly be, be related to the listeners of this show who are ultra runners. Um, you know, they may very well be coming back um, into ultra running from a different sport, or they may be coming into ultra running from, say, 10K, half marathon, marathon. Um, so they may have some speed and they may have some endurance, but they may not have the endurance to go really long. And I think that's where we can sort of really pick up and be specific about some of the advice that you can bring as to how they can go about that. Right. And I could use Mark as an example because uh, what I did with Mark, I have done with uh, beginners. I've done with ultra marathoners. I worked with Stu Middleman for many years and we did the same exact thing with him. Okay. Um, but before I, I get into some of those details, I, sh I should probably better define this issue of endurance and speed and, you know, what is it all about? Absolutely. Well, when you think of speed and when, when the average person sees or hears the word speed uh, in their sport, they think of running on the track and running at a full sprint or close to a full sprint. People go on the track and do uh, 400-meter Repeat, repeats or 200 meter repeats uh, at you know some very fast pace and then jog a bit and then do that again. That's sort of a traditional thing that's been around since um, since coaches from track and field became endurance coaches back in the 60s. That was sort of what they brought into the sport, which is an interesting history. But there's another speed, and it's it's really endurance speed. And I refer to it specifically as aerobic speed. And that's the ability to run faster at a lower heart rate. So if you could run at, say, uh, a nine minutes per mile pace at a 150 heart rate, um, and then you build your aerobic system and you progress to being able to run at an eight-minute pace at the same heart rate, then you've gained a lot of speed. Yep. Uh, and with with Mark, what I did was I put a heart monitor on him. And back then, th there really were not heart monitors available. I had a cardiac rehab monitor that was big and bulky, and it um, it was kind of funny looking, but it, it was all we had back then. And I set up the, um, the heart rate, and I said, you know, let's run at this heart rate. And I remember running around the track with him at uh, the University of San, Di San Diego, we're kind of going along, and he said, this is kind of slow. And I said, well, this is the level you need to build your aerobic system. And it turned out to be about an 820 pace. And I said, how fast do you normally train? And he said, well, about two minutes faster per mile. I said, well, that's why you're not developing endurance. Yeah. So what Mark did was progress from that 820 per mile pace at – at the time, he was at a 155 heart rate based on his age and, and health. Uh, he progressed to about a 5-minute and 10-second pace per mile at the same heart rate. Right. And that's really what aerobic speed is all about. Right. If you can run a lot faster at the same heart rate, then when you get into a race, you'll be able to race a lot more efficiently with without overextending your body and using up your glycogen stores and so forth. Can I clarify a question there? So if we have a good endurance base, so let's let's say we turn this around the opposite way. 
So let's say we're coming from an ultra running background um, and we have plenty of endurance, plenty of aerobic capacity. If we then add speed training on top of that, does that make us faster? It depends on which form of speed training uh, is done. If you decide, well, I could, you know, I can go out and run 30 miles and feel quite good, then then that's great endurance. Uh, if you then decide you're going to go to the track and do uh, one mile repeats at a seven minute pace when your 30 mile endurance training run is is at a, a nine minute pace, that's probably beyond your ability. And what you'll end up doing is you'll be able to do your track workouts a little better as time goes on, but your endurance um, actually may become impaired because we have this aerobic system, which is our uh, endurance uh, system, which burns a lot of fat. Yep. That's how we get our energy. We burn sugar as well, but the more fat we burn, the, the better we are as an endurance athlete. And then we have the anaerobic system, which is our um, sprinting speed. And they need to maintain a certain balance. And if they don't, if we push the anaerobic system too much, then we impair our aerobic system, we diminish our fat burning, and our endurance is affected adversely. Right. So if we take Mark as an example, and let's say we, you, you got him to run a, a sort of 8.15, 8.30 pace to build his aerobic capacity, but if he did some speed work at, say, 7.30 pace, would then the combination work? If he did too much speed work, then it would not work. So what we did was, uh, I, you know, eventually heart monitors became readily available, and so he trained every day with a heart monitor. And there was a period of time in the year, typically in the winter when there were not really any any important races, where uh, Mark, and again, I, I, I did, this, did this with so many endurance athletes, but there's a period of time when you want to build that aerobic system strictly by training at or below this aerobic level. Yep. And during that period of time, you build your endurance and you don't get any interference from speed work, which can diminish the, the aerobic development. Okay, great. And that, lo that period of time can last three, four, five, six months in some cases. And during that period of time, the runner gets faster and faster. And now after a six-month period, we say, okay, now what, what do we do? Then we look at the schedule. We look at the, you know, you have to look at people's life as well because some people have a busy job, a family, a house. They're, they have a very busy life. And if they can include a track workout or a road fartlek workout uh, in amongst their training and the rest of their life, then that's okay. Then at that point, they could do that. And then at that point, you could you can add some of that anaerobic speed work without interfering with your aerobic base unless you do it for too long. And I recommend, you know, physiologically um, doing speed work can sometimes return maximum benefits after just three or four weeks. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly the type of thing that I was thinking of. So you could use it to mm -hmm. sharpen yourself up exactly. coming into an A race. Right. Yeah. But again, you, you, you need to look at your entire life and say, do I have time for another kind of workout? That's a very stressful workout. These are not 
you know, this is not uh, an easy 10, 20 mile run where people just go out and they're capable of doing that. This is a, a high risk workout. And when people get injured, um, physically injured, th in the majority of cases, those injuries occur in anaerobic muscle fibers. And the result is from doing something anaerobic. Right. Interesting. So let's take um, Mark and, and talk about how you made this transition with him and the, you know, so that people who are listening to this show can apply what, uh, what you did with Mark. Well, I determined the optimal heart rate that would develop his aerobic system. And for him in the beginning, and I can't remember how old he was in 1982 or three, but that, you know, he was a, a young guy and his training heart rate was 155. I refer to that as the maximum aerobic training heart rate. So I said to him, do anything you want in training, but don't exceed 155 heart rate. So when you're going up a hill, you have to slow down. When you're going down a hill, you can speed up. If somebody comes running up behind you and passes you, you can't follow them, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And as as time went on, he got faster, and as soon as he saw that he could actually run faster at the same heart rate, he got pretty excited. Okay. And how do we find out what that, that heart rate is? There's uh, something called the 180 formula, which is on my website. It's in my books. It's in a lot of articles that are out there. And the 180 formula has you subtract your age from 180, um, and that number has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a means to an end. And then depending on your uh, state, of, there's a whole bunch of things you need to look at, um, determine which one of four categories do you best fit into. And those categories will have you subtract an additional 10, subtract an additional 5, keep the number 180 minus the age the same, or uh, if you're a competitive athlete, add five. So, but it depends on you know if you're if you're often injured, if you're frequently ill with uh, colds and flu, or if you have allergies, or if you're on medication, you have to make these adjustments, and then you come up with a number, and that's your maximum aerobic heart rate. Okay, and can can this maximum aerobic heart rate be found with a, a VO2 test? Well, it's really how I came up with the formula. Um, originally, actually, I determined the formula, what I call manually. I would, I would evaluate an athlete. I would test them. I would do blood tests. I would do treadmill tests. Um, I would look at their posture. You know, if you look at someone's gait, uh, and I, I used to go to the track uh, with a bunch of athletes every week, and I would evaluate their gaits. And what I discovered was that when an athlete shifted from an aerobic run to an anaerobic run, and it could be a matter of three or four beats, heartbeats, um, very slight increase in speed. Uh, when that happened, there'd be a slight alteration in the gait. The gait would um, be noticeably changed. And so I would do all these evaluations, and it would take a couple of hours for me to really come up with a number for an athlete. And I, I thought that, well, gee, there must be a better way to do this. And then I realized that the treadmill test where they measure the oxygen and carbon dioxide, um, which is how they measure VO2 max, but VO2 max is, I consider it a, a less worthy number than some other important number, which is called respiratory quotient. Yeah. Respiratory quotient is the 
the amount of carbon dioxide you exhale and the amount of oxygen you inhale, and that formula will give you the RQ, respiratory quotient, and it really yeah. tells you how much fat you're burning versus sugar. Yeah. And so the whole goal of building the aerobic system and, and building great endurance with aerobic speed is to increase the body's ability to convert fat to energy and have less of an emphasis on sugar, which is something that sprinters use. Yeah, and this is why your your training methods are so interesting uh, in line with paleo and low-carbohydrate because that's directly right. related to the RQ. It really is, is all tied together. And, and today, uh, gas analyzers with technology are so um, common. They're easy to find. You can... Um, you can find often a trainer or a, a therapist or a doctor in his office having a, a gas analyzer and a notebook computer. It doesn't take much equipment. Um, but I, I use that to, to kind of confirm what my ideas were, and that led to the formula because not everybody could have, have these treadmill tests reg regularly. Yeah. And with, uh, with the advent of um, the wireless heart monitors in 83 or 84, I think, it became uh, a wonderful biofeedback tool that runners could use. Just plug in the numbers, uh, plug in your, your, yourself to the formula, come up with your training heart rate, and train at that level so that you build the aerobic system. So w we've got our training heart rate. that We don't go over it. Um, and as we train, we become faster at that same heart rate. So what does that training involve? It really involves whatever you could create as a schedule based on your lifestyle. So if you could, you know, if you can spend an hour a day and maybe two hours on a Sunday training, then that's your training schedule. It almost doesn't, you have some leeway. You could be more than that or less than that or a lot more than that if you have the time. And some people have time for 45 minutes a day and no more. You know, that becomes very individual, but the heart rate the maximum aerobic heart rate is very specific that you want to maintain. And there's a very, very important factor here. And you you mentioned it by saying, you know, you, you train at that heart rate and you get faster. The question is, what happens if you don't get faster? Hmm. Well, the human body makes progress. If you give it the right stimulus, it gets better. We are, uh, we are endurance animals. We are... Um, genetically programmed to, to get better. We are, we are high-performance people, and um, we will, by nature, get better. If we don't, it means something is wrong. It means your diet is not right. It means your stress levels are too high. It means you came up with the wrong number. Maybe you're three beats higher. Some people are very sensitive, and if they're three beats higher than they should be, they won't progress. If you're not eating well, if you're for example, uh, if you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, not during your run, but, but during your regular eating habits, um, that's the quickest way to turn off your fat-burning mechanism. So yeah. if you don't see yourself progressing, it's a very good test because it tells you that something is blocking your natural uh, ability to be better endurance athlete. What I'm finding really interesting is that we've had a lot of conversation on Tour Culture about changing diet, but we're almost taking it to another level here in the sense of, of the depth that you can bring to this in relation to heart rate. So 
when we're, we're we're doing this session uh, and let's say we've found what our heart rate is and everything is working well and we are progressing so we are getting faster how do we then control it is there a time scale that we do this for um you know does it work for three months six months nine months is it something that we incorporate all the time i know a lot of athletes who incorporate it all the time Stu middleman only trained aerobically uh for his uh races mark on the other hand did some anaerobic work because um in part that's what he wanted to do I think it helped them a little bit. It didn't help them a lot because for an Ironman race, 99% of his energy would come from his aerobic system. And um, so it depends on the person. But generally, um, as you progress and get faster as the weeks and the months go by, typically what happens is you reach a plateau, a natural plateau, where the body has sort of built a good aerobic base and it, it almost is like the body wants to stay there and um, and uh, and not make any more progress. And that's a nice point to say, okay, we're going to do a few weeks of something anaerobic uh, very carefully. And during that period of time, you generally won't get any faster aerobically at that same aerobic heart rate, but you shouldn't get any slower. Um, and then to, to make sure, uh, what I recommend people do is, to test themselves on a track, and I call this the MAF test, Maximum Aerobic Function Test. Yeah. And you could do it on the road. You could do it at any point-to-point um, um, course. I like it on the track because I can, you know, people can relate to things better. I, I think on, on the track. But basically, you run, um, say, five miles on a track, and you time each mile. And your mile splits might go from nine minutes to nine minutes and 10 seconds. And then the third one, nine minutes and 15 seconds. You normally would go a little slower as the miles pass. Um, and that's because of the, a, a normal fatigue factor. And every month, if that test is done, then you have um, a list of, of months with your first mile time, say, uh, uh, nine minutes is your first mile time. And then a month later, your first mile time is... 8.50, and then maybe a third month here at 8.45. And so as the months go by, like I said earlier, six months comes by and you're, you're now at an eight-minute pace. Well, you hit this plateau, and then you might do some speed work, and, but still do the MAF test because if you find suddenly where you were at an eight-minute pace, now you're at an 8.20 pace, then you know you've gone off course and yeah. your aerobic system is, is going backwards and that's not a good thing. It's something that I've incorporated with my coaching clients um, in the past is that once a month we've done an MAF test and and of course the, the conditions that you, you do that test in need to be as close to to each other as possible um you know because weather, right. weather conditions temperature wind etc will always affect a test like that how do you get around that phil when you've done this in the past do you try to go indoors or have you naturally assumed that conditions would be consistent well it's difficult you know where you are um in england you, you have a problem <laughs> with humidity in the air yeah um quite often and humidity you know the difference between a dry day and a and a, a high humid day is is going to be a fair amount, um, and of course, wind and um, all kinds of other things. So, you know, I tell people to do the best they can in terms of 
consistency. If they have an indoor track available, that's perfect. But if you go on an indoor track and if it's a shorter, you know, if it's if it's a 200-meter track, you have to consider that because you'll be a little slower because of the turns. You know, you do the best you can. If you see a, a five-second difference in your MAF test, it doesn't excite me much either way. But if you see a 15 or 20-second difference from one test to the next, then then that becomes significant. We've done the MAF test um, and we've plateaued. Um, and so we incorporate some new training, some speed work, which adds a different stimulus. And, and as you said, we'll, we'll see a benefit from that in, say, two to three weeks. What do we then do at that point? Do we then go back to the heart rate and, and then carry on another phase of training? Exactly. Then you, well, there's two, two ways to go. And, you know, it, it's also a very individual thing, depending on what a person wants to do. But, but at that point, a person might typically enter competition and have a so-called race season or um, one key race or, uh, you know, two or three key races leading up to the big race or whatever. Um, and then during that time, um, they still want to, you know, go back to only aerobic training. And then, uh, when the race season ends, you then have your big aerobic training base again, where you're doing the aerobic training for six months and you're trying to get your, your MAF test down even lower. And then, uh, that continues as a, as a training cycle. Okay. We get on to the next point now we've, we've covered the training side of it, but it directly relates to low carbohydrates and paleo um, because what we want to do is turn on the fat burning system. And, and that's really, um, that's the bottom line with endurance. You've got to train your body to uh, burn more fat for energy. And what, what I found was that not only is fat burning important for endurance racing, but it's important for health. I found that um, I think I have in one of my books or maybe some of my books and articles uh, a little chart where I had um, non-competitive athletes uh, tested, and I found that their RQs, those who basically burned more fat, had less signs and symptoms of ill health. And um, you, you not only get an endurance benefit, which is a fitness-oriented thing, but you get the health benefits. And if you're both health, healthy and fit, you're going to be a better athlete. What about the argument that people would say, so you're telling me to, to eat no carbohydrate, um, where am I going to get my energy from? Well, um, most of the body's energy comes from, could come from fat. It comes from both fat and sugar, and it's, it's a mix of fuels that humans have the ability to, to utilize, and those who, who obtain more of their energy from fat are much better off. Um, but I want to go back and just uh, comment on something you said, uh, which is that we don't want to eat any carbohydrate. That's not true. We're, we're going to be eating some carbohydrate. We're eating vegetables. We're, we're eating some berries, some fruits. E even meat yeah. has some carbohydrate. So we are eating carbohydrates. We're, uh, we're not so low, most of the time at least, that we go into the state of ketosis. Um, there are some, yeah. uh, I, I spoke to uh, uh, someone recently who's setting up a, an event on our upcoming tour who is with a group, and I can't remember the name now, but what they do is they are, um, they go into ketosis, and so that's this high fat burning state, and they, they do that by eating hardly any carbohydrate, 
and um, they claim it uh, it increases their ability to use more fats, which is which is true. Um, but basically, it's it's the elimination of refined carbohydrate that's the biggest step for yeah. people because refined carbohydrates produce more insulin. And what insulin does is it turns off our fat-burning mechanism and it increases the body's storage of fat because we're not burning it, so we, we, we store it. I meant that when I, when I said about the carbohydrates. I was making an assumption that, uh, you know, what listeners would assume was that I was meaning the typical yeah. carbs of bread and rice and pasta and, and, and of course, um, vegetables are, are something that we're going to eat, but they do contain carbohydrate and, of course, fruit, mm -hmm. etc. So we have the diet. And, you know, one, one thing that, that I get a lot of feedback on is, so you're actually telling me to eat more fat, but is that not bad for me? Is, you know, what about cholesterol and, and, and things that are related to that? Well, it, it's the first question that comes up. You know, if I eat more fat, am I going to get fat? Um, and I have to say, I, you know, I spent um, a lot of time almost secluded in the music industry. Um, and so I, I, I came uh, to the point where I started going to, races again i started working with some athletes and i noticed in a in just a few short years that the the uh, the number of over fat athletes at races was um uh sadly uh very high i i couldn't believe how how many people have too much body fat eating fat actually promotes the burning of more fat so if you go back let's go back to our rq test on the treadmill if you're going in to have a test and you eat a typical breakfast of, say, cereal or pancakes or something which has refined carbohydrates, your RQ test, you'll fail your test miserably. You won't be burning much fat. You'll be burning a lot of sugar versus the person who has a, yeah. a breakfast of um, eggs and vegetables cooked in butter. Um, and they go in for the test. They will immediately show that they're burning a lot more fat for energy and less less sugar. So, you know, that's uh, one aspect of it. The other, from a health standpoint, um, is that they've really, the, the scientific research has never shown uh, in any significant way that eating fat is bad. The problem is that when we eat a lot of uh, saturated fat, for example, animal fat, and we don't consume enough of the um, fats from, say, fish, uh, which are very, very important fats that help balance our our body's use of fats in other ways, such as controlling inflammation. And of course, we're eating. If we eat a lot of vegetables, then we're getting uh, a lot of uh, those polyunsaturated fats as well, which are also important. So, good diet will give us a good balance of fats. That's really the the bottom line. Great. When we're going out for our long run at our lower heart rate. Do you advocate going fasted or eating fat before to help turn the fat burners well, on? Well, mostly it depends on the person, but I think for most people, having a meal before that training uh, run is going to be very helpful. And then the, the question is, uh, what do I eat during my run? And really the response is, find out how long you can run before you need to consume something. Um, many people can yeah. run for 45 minutes or an hour or 90 minutes or two hours. Um, what happens is as you improve your aerobic system 
And as you could run faster at the same heart rate, as your MAF test gets better, you'll be able to run longer without any supplemental food during your run. And I know people that could easily run two, three hours uh, without anything, and some even longer. So you want to develop that fat-burning mechanism, and then you'll rely more on your body's fat burning than uh, anything else. And then you've brought up the question, Mark, there of let's say we're going out for 10 hours um, and, and listeners to this show will be doing that. So we've turned the fat burners on. We're becoming much more efficient at fat burning and, and maybe we can actually get to four hours without needing any supplementation. But once we, we get to that point where we need to start taking additional food, does it matter what that food is? I mean, for example, can we take gels or do we start to cause issues with our within our system then if we start to take high sugars? Well, there again, it depends on the person and it all comes down to one important thing and it's experimentation. Um, as a runner, you've got to find out uh, two very, you've got to answer two important questions. One is what uh, food is going to help maintain my energy? And two, what food is going to not give me intestinal distress? If you find yeah. the foods that meet both those, those important answers, then you've got the perfect food. What I recommend is that um, people try, uh, try using honey. Honey has, uh, uh, is a, is a monosaccharide, uh, uh, so we don't have to digest honey. Many of the gels are made from uh, disaccharides like sucrose or uh, rice uh, syrup or corn syrup or some other disaccharide and sometimes even a starch. And they all need to be digested. And the, the thing your body will not do very well in the middle of a run is digest something. And the, the, the most common yeah. uh, indicator that you haven't digested your, your food is that you get bloated, you get gas, you get some indigestion, some cramps. Um, that means you've got undigested sugar in your gut and um, you, your, your gut is unable to, to deal with it. Fascinating. Well, I also recommend the, the honey's a good start. I also recommend diluted fruit juice, um, not citrus, but uh, apple juice, for example, or grape juice. But diluted, you want about a 6% glucose solution. Okay. Um, and so those are going to be, um, uh, I, I talk a lot about that in articles as well, how you can do that. But you want a, a glucose, you want to consume glucose that's not so intense that um, it overwhelms your system. And 6% seems to be uh, a good one. And the difference between consuming, see, the, the, the process of fat burning, in order to maintain it, we actually need to burn sugar as well. Yeah. So we actually burn two things all the time, and if one disappears, the other one fades out as well. And so we, we need, that's why we would consume carbohydrates during a run to maintain fat burning. Yeah. It's been fascinating speaking to you, Phil. And what I'd like to finish off with is there's going to be quite a few people listening to this and, and thinking, wow, you know, this is maybe exactly what I've been wanting to hear. So, if they've been doing the opposite of what we've been talking about, they're on a they're high carb, high sugar diet, uh, and maybe the the training that they've been doing has not been that controlled. What would you suggest are some of the key things that they should do to transition to this type of diet and this type of training that we've spoken about? 
kind of a funny question, but through the years, many people have said to me, well, what, what one thing can I do? They're really saying, I'm not going to do a lot of things. I'm just going to do one thing, and what do you think it should be? And um, it's, it's a silly question because many people need to do a lot of things because they have a lot of bad habits. But yeah. to answer that question, what one thing could you do? It's getting rid of refined carbohydrates because it will um, turn your body in, in 24 hours into a much better fat-burning machine uh, than you're capable of doing right now. Perfect. That and then, and then coming up with that heart rate, um, between those two things, the average person will excel um, significantly. Yeah. And can I ask one other question? Is that I found when I started to do this, reduce my carbohydrates um, and certainly reduce the amount of food that I was eating during my training sessions, there's a sort of a, a two to three week period, well, for me it was anyway, that I found that you, you feel a little bit rough to begin with. Um, and I guess that's the body wanting the carbohydrate but not getting it uh, and your body learning how to switch from, from one food source to another food source. Is that something that people can expect to feel? I think so in, in many cases. You know, the problem is that the body will respond very quickly. You can measure changes and you'll see those changes take place literally in 24 hours. But the brain is saying, oh, we're doing some very different things here. And part of the problem is that uh, sugar is addicting. And when I say sugar, I'm talking about white flour products too because they turn to sugar very quickly. Yeah. And so we're talking about refined carbohydrates being addicting and people are addicted. And if, you, uh, if you're used to drinking uh, coffee or tea or you know, caffeine sources and you suddenly stop, it's going to take you a while because of your brain to um, adapt to that and, and literally um, get off that addiction. And that's what many people do feel. Okay, brilliant. And if uh, listeners would like to get some further information on this, is there, is there a reference place that they can go to? My website has, I don't know how many articles, probably around 200 articles uh, that will keep them busy for a while. And it's philmaffetone.com. And there's a, a, a sections on uh, on endurance training and barefoot running and lots of uh, nutrition articles and uh, they'll see information about the books as well there. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate your time, Phil, and uh, it has been uh, an enlightening conversation. Thank you, Ian. It's been my pleasure. This is Talk Ultra. 